podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the show on Thursday, the 17th of November. We are getting closer and closer to the World Cup. And to be honest, it doesn't really feel like it at all, does it? Let's be fair. Not many people are overly excited for this World Cup. People will watch it because it's the World Cup. People will watch it out of curiosity. But the fact that it's in November is leaving everybody a little bit cold. The fact that it's in Qatar is leaving everybody a little bit cold, other than the people that are over there, obviously, who are boiling. And the fact that there's just a bit of a stench around it is turning a lot of people off. Everything you hear coming out of it from journalists about, 
you know, being told they can't film in certain places and being moved on from doing their work and whatever else. It just, it really, really doesn't sit well. Qatar are not going to come out of this looking good, in my view. We've had World Cups in the past that people questioned, Japan, South Korea. And despite some very dubious refereeing, a lot of people enjoyed that World Cup. A lot of people thought it was just really nice to see Japan and South Korea get the World Cup. And even though it took the help of referees, do very, very well at that World Cup. A lot of people were dubious about South Africa, but the World Cup came off well. Now, the quality of football at both of those World Cups wasn't great. If we're being honest, the quality of World Cups has been very, very poor for quite a while. Uh, other than 2006, the last good World Cup was in the 90s, in the last millennium, the last century. Uh South Korea, Japan, the quality of football wasn't great. South Africa, the quality of football wasn't great. Brazil, the quality of football was very poor. Russia, the quality of football was very poor. So you have to really go back to the 90s. 98 was a triumph. There was wonderful football played in 94. 90 was brilliant because of everything around it and the football was from a tactical point of view, it was fascinating. 86 was marvellous. 82 was great. 78 was great. 74 was great. World Cups used to be spectacular from a footballing point. Now they're not. Now the World Cup is more a commercial venture than a footballing venture. It's far too diluted. There's far too many teams. You look back, many people say 82 and 86 are the golden era of the World Cup. In 1982, there were 24 teams. In 1986, there were 24 teams. In 1990, 24 teams. In 94, 24 teams. In 98, it moved to 32. And it's going to go up to 48 for the next one. It's, it's just too many teams. There aren't that many good international teams. And it has made a bit of a mockery. The other thing it's done in certain places is it's it's meant the World Cup is a bit too spread out. Like in Japan and South Korea, there were 20 venues. You didn't need 20 venues. Germany proved that by having 12 venues in 06. Like South Africa only had 10 venues. Brazil had 12. Russia had 12. Qatar only has eight. That's an interesting thing. So I think that could help if you're there, that there's more going on in each city. There's only five host cities in Qatar. But there's too many teams. The only time the only times the 32-team World Cup has worked was 98 and 06. It hasn't really worked otherwise from a quality point of view. And as I say, next time, it's 48 teams, 16 host cities, and the World Cup will be played across three countries. Um, now, the stadiums will be spectacular in America. 
and in Mexico and Canada, obviously. Um, Mexico have put forward Monterrey, which their stadium is sensational, and Guadalajara. Again, the Estadio Akron is is gorgeous looking. Um, Canada have BMO in Toronto, which wouldn't have been one of the ones I'd have picked. I'll just say that. It wouldn't have been one of the ones I'd have picked. But BC Place in Vancouver is is a triumph. Um, the Hard Rock Stadium, they've done a lot of good work on it. Levi Stadium is nice. Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia is great. Lumen Field in Seattle is great. I don't know why I'm talking about this World Cup, but the stadiums will be great for that World Cup. I'm sure they'll be good for this one. But the issue is everybody knows what's happened to the people that worked on building those stadiums. Everybody is aware of of what's taken place. And everybody's also aware of the fact that these stadiums have just been built for this competition and most of them won't get used again in any real way. The Lucille Iconic Stadium 80,000 capacity, an architectural triumph. But is it going to have 80,000 for any game ever again? The Al Bat Stadium, stunning, genuinely stunning. 60,000 capacity. Is it going to get used for that kind of capacity ever again? The others are all in the 40,000 sort of range and again I just don't know that they'll ever be full it just seems like this World Cup is a frivolous waste of money by the ruling family of Qatar when that money could go to the citizens of Qatar you know and make their lives better I know a lot of them have a lot of them live good lives but a lot of them don't There's just something about this World Cup that's just, it's obviously not sitting right with most people. But look, it will be on, we'll watch it, we'll talk about it, and we'll see what happens. Uh, BBC, following on from their 10 best World Cup players, have done their 10 best teams not to win the World Cup. So number 10, they've got Belgium in 2018. Uh, Micka Richards picked them 10th. Shearer picked them as the fifth best team not to win the World Cup. That might be a bit of a stretch. Um, number nine, they both went for Argentina in 06. Crespo, Raquel May. To be fair, Crespo was probably a little bit past his best at that point. 31, he, yeah, he'd probably seen his best days. His best years were kind of Parma Lazio. He still had a good career after that, but Raquel May was special. Obviously, young Messi, and it was a good team. Um, they played some wonderful football. They really did. Germany beat them in the quarterfinals. Um, France, 1982. Micka Richards picked them eighth. Shearer picked them 10th. They're placed at 8th. That was a very, very good team. And obviously they went on to win the European Championships in 84 with that magic box midfield. They were very, very unfortunate 
there was a the big controversial moment in the game against West Germany. England 2002 up next. Uh, this team doesn't belong on this list. I'm sorry. Richards has them seventh. Shearer put them eighth and they're seventh on the list. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They drew with Sweden and drew with Norway in the group stage. Struggled through their group. And then, you know, they did beat Argentina. To be fair, they did beat Argentina. But then they got knocked out by Brazil. Like, they never came close to winning it. And they never looked like a team that was going to win it. It was an overrated team. If we look at... Let's take a quick look at 2002 World Cup. If I'm not mistaken, didn't Danny Mills play right back in this competition? Or am I mistaken? Maybe I am. So they opened up against Sweden. Yeah. So Danny Mills in, at right back, bang average. Emil Heskey and Darius Vassell starting. Owen Hargreaves in midfield with uh, Beckham on the right, Skulls next to Hargreaves, and Emil Heskey on the left. Move on to their game against Nigeria. Again, Danny Mills starts. Rio Ferdinand, obviously overrated. Nicky Butt starts in midfield. Trevor Sinclair is left wing. That's Emil Heskey up front with Owen. The sub is coming on. Sheringham, well past his best at that point. Darius Vassell and Wayne Bridge. That's who you're calling on to try and win that game. Uh, you know, similar team when they played England and the same subs. Oh, actually, Sinclair came off the bench in that one. Uh, Hargreaves. Hargreaves and Butt started in midfield. So, I mean, you're getting very, very excited if you think they're going to win a World Cup. Get their squad up for a sec. David Seaman, at that point, 38 years of age, past his best. Danny Mills, garbage. A very young Ashley Cole, who had eight caps going into the tournament. Trevor Sinclair, a decent player, but, you know, a young Rio Ferdinand, who was very, very error-prone. Saul Campbell in his pomp, fair. Beckham skulls in their pump. 27-year-old Fowler had had a bunch of injuries. Not for me. 22-year-old Michael Owen, no problem at all there. 24-year-old Heskey was still consistently good for Liverpool, but on the world stage fell short. Uh, a young and experienced Wes Brown. 35-year-old Nigel Martin as one of of the backup goalkeepers. Very good goalkeeper, but, you know, was coming towards the end there. Uh, Wayne Bridge, young and inexperienced. Martin Keown, 35 and past his best. Garrett Southgate, 31 and past his best. Sheringham, 36 and past his best. A young, inexperienced Hargreaves. A young, inexperienced Joe Cole. A young, inexperienced and not all that good Darius Vassell. Nicky Butt, David James, 31 years of age, had probably seen his best days, and then Kieran Dyer, nine caps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 
10 players with less than 10 caps going into that World Cup in a 23-man squad. One, two, three, four. Four players who'd already seen their 35th birthday. Two of them, admittedly, goalkeepers, but two outfield players. That That's... I think they've gotten confused and thought that that squad was better than it was. I, that's They were never winning that World Cup. Ever. That wasn't the, the quote-unquote golden generation. That doesn't belong on the list. Sorry. Um, France 06. Shearer and Richards both put them sixth. And they are sixth on the list, obviously. Yeah, I mean... Again, it was sort of the end of that France team. If you consider Zidane retired after that World Cup, Lillian Turam was towards the end. Vieira had probably just about crested past the best years he would have. Let's get their squad. Uh, There we go. Like Landru, not a great goalkeeper. Boomsong, poor. Abidal, very, very good. Vieira, to be fair, was only 29. He'd be 30 during the tournament. Galas, Makaleli, Maluda, Dorasu, Sidney Govu, Zizu, Sylvan Wiltord, past his best. Henri in his prime, to be fair. Mikel Sylvester was in the squad, though. Luis Saha was in the squad. Turam Bartez right at the very end. Gail Gavetz, Alu Diara, Willie Sanyol, Trezeguet in his prime. Pascal Chimbonda, Wigan Athletic having a player in the French squad for the World Cup. Magnificent. Um, a young Frank Ribery who had only three caps. And Gregory Coupe. No, I I don't think that squad was all that strong, but they could put together a good eleven because there was some world class players there. Um, England nineteen ninety. I would agree with Richards. Put them fourth. Shearer seventh. Shearer is right. Were the best days gone for a few of the players? Absolutely, but that was a really strong England squad. Really, really strong England squad. Now, Shilton was well past his best. And that was a big flaw in that England team. He had lost all sense of athleticism. He was 40. He shouldn't really have been the number one anymore. But Chris Woods hadn't done enough to take that shirt off him. And David Seaman, even though he was 26, only had three caps. Um, But you had Gary Stevens, who was good. Stuart Pearson as prime, who was excellent. Uh, Neil Webb was good. Des Walker was tremendous back then. Terry Butcher, kind of tail end of his prime, but still still capable. Uh, Brian Robson was past his best and got injured. And that was a big loss because he was kind of an inspirational figure. Chris Waddle was in his prime. Beardsley was in his prime. Lineker was in his prime. Barnes was entering his prime. Paul Parker was a shutdown right back. He couldn't get past him. Mark Wright was coming into his prime years. Tony DeRigo was a good young left back. Steve McMahon was in his prime. David Platt was 
an up-and-coming player and obviously the great World Cup. Gaza was an up-and-coming player, had a great World Cup. Steve Hodge was a reliable player. Trevor Stephen was very, very good. Uh, Steve Bull, the level was, was always too high for him. Steve Bull was always best as a kind of, now it would be a championship player. He'd be the type that's too good for the championship, struggles a bit in the Premier League. Um, Seaman actually had to pull out of the squad through an injury and was replaced by Dave Besant, who won two caps for England. Um, that was a better squad than the that was a better squad than the O O two squad. Like Walker, Butcher, and Mark Wright. That's a strong back three. Pierce, Paul Parker, excellent fullbacks, wingbacks, whatever you want. That was a better team, and they had a better manager. Bobby Robson was a better manager than Sven, and I like Sven. I think Sven is largely underrated. Uh, West Germany in 86, yeah, absolutely fair. That was a great team. Lothar Matthäus was just otherworldly at the time. Unfortunately, they went into the final, and for whatever reason, the German manager at the time decided that the best use of Lothar Matthäus, the the best player that Germany had was to have him man mark Maradona. And it was just such a waste of what he could have brought to that final. Um, it was Beckenbauer was manager. Of course it was. So you had Tony Schumacher, Andreas Bremer was 25 and outstanding for Kaiserslautern. Uh, you had Pierre Litbarski coming into his prime, Matthias in his mid-twenties, Rudy Vuller coming into his prime. You had Felix Magatz, still really, really impressive. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, one of the best strikers in the world at that point. Thomas Berthold, young defender, but fantastic. Klaus Augenthaler, outstanding defender at that point. Olaf Thone, young, looked like he was going to be a world beater, had a very good career, didn't quite reach the the level that was hoped for him. Uh, Klaus Olofs was a good player. Dieter Honus was a very good player. That was a strong team. Ike Emil, if anyone remembers him, former Manchester City goalkeeper. Very, very good. Played for City from 95 to 97. Back when he was at Dortmund and Stuttgart, though, he was seen as one of the better goalkeepers in Europe. And was just a little bit unfortunate that he um, was behind Tony Schumacher, who might be the, until now, or might be the best German keeper ever. Um, guys put something in the chat. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I fully agree. Euro, Euro 2008 should have been England's absolute pinnacle, and they didn't get there. Like, you had... Prime everybody, bar Beckham. Scholes was probably a little bit. Yeah, Scholes would have been gone as well. But you had Gerard Lampard. That was Rooney. The overrated centre-backs. But prime Ashley Cole. Struggling a bit for a right-back around that point. And maybe a goalkeeper. But everything else should have been there. Carrick was there. Hargreaves was in his prime. 
that should have been it, but they made an absolute hames of it. Um, there's a piece on the BBC website. Jack Grealish is England's enigma any closer to starting. Um, he shouldn't be. He really shouldn't be because he's been terrible for 18 months at City. And I don't care about passes into the box or shots assisted or dribbles into the box. He has not been good for Man City. Simple as that. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, Sebastian Haller needs fur further surgery on his tumour. That's horrible news. Uh, I've only him to undergo further surgery in testicular tumour battle. God, that's horrible news. I will have to undergo an operation to permanently end this tumour which keeps me away from the pitch. Christ, well, all you can do is hope that he makes a full recovery because what a horrible, horrible affliction. And what a time you get struck down as well when you're right in your prime and you're playing the best football of your career. But obviously, his life is more important than just the football side of things. Uh, into Qatar, a journey to explore a nation's relationship with football. Oh, this looks very, very impressive. I haven't read this yet. Give this a go on BBC's website. Um, why England's meeting with Iran is a stage for protest. Wales move training time to cope with the Qatari heat. Saint Galactico Welsh hero, Gareth Bale's evolution. There's some stuff about Cristiano Ronaldo's interview. Frankly, I couldn't care less. Uh, there's a piece entitled What Makes a Golden Boot Winner? So do give that a look there. And we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got a few questions. We've got the gossip and we'll be done. I'll see you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So a uh, little bit of a tangent here, as always. Uh, was looking at Ike Emil and um, discovered that he had spent some time as uh, the goalkeeping coach for Christoph Daum, who I had completely forgotten about, but was an absolutely outstanding manager once upon a time. Um, back in the late 90s, he was Leverkusen manager, did very, very well there was set to become the German national team manager until a press report that he was engaging in cocaine-fueled orgies with prostitutes. Dam then threatened the press and gave hair samples to authorities to convince everybody about his innocence. When the samples showed he was a cocaine user, he told the press the hairs weren't his. Absolutely fantastic. A year later, once facing the prospect of jail time, he admitted he had used cocaine. Uh, his agreement to become national team manager was annulled and he was kind of banished then by German football. He turned up with Besiktas. It didn't go very well. He went to Austria Vienna. It didn't go very well. He did okay with Fenerbahce. Came back to Germany finally in 06 with Cologne. Went back to Fenerbahce, then Eintracht Frankfurt. Club Bruges, Bursa Spore. 
and then Romania. It completely, completely shoehorned, uh, or sorry, um, torpedoed his career. Like he was on a real high trajectory. He had been at Cologne, finished runner up in the Bundesliga twice, won the Bundesliga as Stuttgart manager, also won the Super Cup. Went to Besiktas the first time, uh, won the Turkish Cup, the Turkish Super Cup, and the Turkish League. Um, finished runner-up in the Bundesliga three times with Leverkusen. Won, actually, to be fair, he did better at Austria Vienna than I gave him credit for. He won the league and cup in a double. Then went to Fenerbahce, won the league twice, and finished runner-up twice, won the Turkish Cup, sorry, Turkish Super Cup. And was runner-up in the Turkish Cup three times across his two spells there. So, to be fair, um, he won four league titles in three different countries. And still won a few cups, but he should have he should have been the next great manager. That's what he looked like he was set to be when he was at Leverkusen. And he kind of threw it all away. Shame. His last job was as manager... Of the Romanian national team, he was sacked after failing to get them to the World Cup, which I wouldn't really blame him for because Romania have been garbage for quite a long time now. Um, anyway, that was my little tangent. Let's move on to questions. So, Kieran, or what are your five favorite World Cup kits of all time? Right. Um, Let me think. West Germany 1990 stands out as one I liked. The white with the kind of staggered lines of the German flag across through it. Always liked that one. Argentina in 86 is iconic, largely because of Maradona. Germany's away kit in 90 was special as well, wasn't it? That kind of um, green with the white coming through. It was a little bit like Liverpool's silver away kit in the late 90s. I think that was Adidas as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the two West Germany kits, Maradona's 86, Argentine kit. There was a great Nigerian kit. Was it 94? 1994 Nigeria hit. Yes. Yeah, give me some of this. Absolutely mental. It, from the distance, it looked like money had been printed onto a white shirt. Um, I always liked this. Made reading the names in the back of the shirt quite hard. But the greatest kit in World Cup history is undoubtedly the 1986 Danish dynamite kit. Sensational. Half white, half red and white stripes. The white half had a red and white striped sleeve. The red and white striped half had a white sleeve. Red shorts, white socks with a red and white striped cuff. You won't beat it. Absolutely sensational. So yeah, they're, they're the five I'd go with. Um, the two German kits from 90... Argentina 86, 
Nigeria 94 and that Danish kit from 86 just is the one. But Germany at 1990 absolutely nailed it. Their two kits were just outrageously good. I don't think anyone's ever had two kits that good at the same time, club or country, other than that Liverpool couple of years where they had the candy shirts, which would have been the same generation of, of Adidas um, designers and stuff. So uh, getting it right at that point was Adidas. Uh, next up, Isaac Gilding. Which nations are the biggest footballing underperformers in your opin- opinion, both currently and historically? Um, well, England, for certain. Now, I will say they have obviously done well at the last two tournaments, uh, World Cup semifinals, European Championship finals. But they've also had quite easy runs to those, and they haven't won anything since 1966. So I think they have to go in. Although they've reached a World Cup final and won a recent uh, Copa America, I do think you have to put Argentina in over the Messi era to not win it and to only win one Copa America. That's a little bit disappointing. I think based on the talent they have and the talent they've always produced, you'd have to put Portugal in, even though they won the European Championships in 2016. I mean, think of the teams they had in the 90s and 2000s. They had outrageous players with Figo and Paulo Sosa, Joe Pinto, Rui Costa. Unbelievable teams. And never got across the line. France underachieved for some time, but got it right, obviously, in 98, 2000, and 2016. Spain were always seen as kind of underachievers until they had that incredible run from 08 to 12. At this moment in time, even though they won the Euros, it's got to be Italy because they didn't make the World Cup. But they did win the Euros, so you, you give them a pass on that. Um, Germany underachieved for a long time after the 96 Euros obviously went on to win the World Cup in 2014. So you can't knock them. I think the USA underachieve when you consider the sheer volume of players available to them and the talent that they do have. They have an outrageous talent. Um, they're just they're, number one, they're really bad at picking managers, and number two, they just don't settle on a squad. There's far too many players involved for the US men's national team, far too many players. Like, you go and look at the players that have been called up, US MNT. Look at the amount of players that have been called up in the last 12 months alone. 
So you've got 26 in the current squad. Recent call-ups. Now, bear in mind, they picked three goalkeepers. They've also had three others called up in the last uh, 12 months. Now, one of them is Slanina, who they wanted to call up to make sure he didn't declare for another country. But you, you don't have five goalkeepers good enough. Uh, defenders who were have been called up in the last 12 months but not made the World Cup squad. Five, 10, 15. 15 defenders on top of the nine. 24 defenders have been called up. You don't have 24 defenders good enough to play for your national team. They've picked seven midfielders for the World Cup. Another nine have been called up in the last 12 months. So 16, 16 midfielders. And they've picked seven forward players and another six have been called up in the last 12 months. You've got 13 attackers, 16 midfielders, 24 defenders. That's 53 and six goalkeepers. 59 players called up in 12 months. 59 players in 12 months is outrageous. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Twelve matches they've played. Fifty-nine players. That's ridiculous. You can't get proper cohesion in a squad with that many players being in and out. And what strikes me as funny as well is you'd always look at the US men's national team and there'd be a load of players with 70, 80, 90 caps. Now you look at it. You've got none of the goalkeepers in the World Cup squad have more than 20. You've got two defenders with more than 30. Oh, sorry, three defenders with more than 30 caps. Walker Zimmerman, Trump's name, but not sure he's a tremendous defender. He's all right. Uh, Tim Ream, who's 35 and not very good, having a decent season, though. And DeAndre Yedlin, who's awful. He's just a sprinter. Midfield, you've got one over 40 caps, Kellen Acosta. And you've got two attackers with more than 30 caps. One is Jordan Morris and the other is Pulisic. There's no cohesion here. Even the players that have been called up in the last 12 months haven't been hugely experienced. You've got, of those 59, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. 27 of them have 10 caps or less, including a whole bunch that were called up and didn't play. It's just silly. It's just silly. You don't need to have that many players involved. All you're doing is diluting the talent pool. Have your squad of 25 or 26 that you call up and then have another like 15 to 18 who for certain meaningless friendlies you bring in instead of having lads schlepping across from Europe. You know, like when the USA plays El Salvador 
or Honduras or Panama. They shouldn't need to be calling up all of their best players, but they should, and then they should, so they should have a good group of, you know, maybe domestic players that can step in. Don't really understand the need to play all these meaningless friendlies either. You know, but the same thing goes when they're playing Granada or El Salvador in the, the Nations League. They should be able to call on, you know, MLS players, ones with high ceiling that you can bring in and can do a job. I guess things stand, they've already got four games set up for next year. Serbia and Colombia in January. Why do you need to play friendlies in January? You, the World Cup only ends in December. There's no need for it at all. Let the players have a rest. And if you're going to call up a bunch of lads that won't be in the squad when it comes to real games, you're just wasting your time. Then they play Granada and El Salvador again in the Nations League. And again, they should be the only two games, and that should be the games that you're calling up players that are on the fringes. Burhalter should be gone after this World Cup with a bit of luck. He's he's not very good. He hasn't done well with the US. I don't really understand how it is that he got the job, considering he wasn't particularly good for Columbus Crew. He didn't exactly pull up trees with Hammerby. Like he's won sixty four point three percent of his games, but look at who they're playing. It's not exactly the best of the best. So the USA, I would say, that of, of all of them, they're the biggest underachievers for me. Um, AMK2889, your all-time Portuguese 11. Uh, Vitor Bahia in goal. Right back. I would say Paulo Ferreira left back. I'll go with Jao Canseo because I do quite like him. Um, I think he's overrated, but I do quite like him. Uh, Centre backs Ricardo Carvalho and Pepe. Yeah. Although yeah, I'll go with those two. I'll go with those two. Uh, midfield, Figo on the right. We'll play a boxy midfield, so we'll go with Rui Costa, Figo, Paulo Sosa. And I love Ruben Neves, so even though he's probably shouldn't be, I'm going to put Ruben Neves in. I'll go... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go with Sosa... And Neves as my midfield two with Figo right, Rui Costa left, flexing into a nice box midfield. And then, I mean, the show pony needs to be one of the forward players. And I'll go Zhao Pinto as the other. If Zhao Felix were to leave Atleti, what club would he and the club benefit most? Um, no. That is a good question. So there's only going to be certain clubs that can afford them. I, I think PSG would be a disaster. Um, Bayern don't need him because they've got 
Jamal Musiala as a 10. I don't really like Zhao all that much as a 9. So I'd rule out Germany. I'm not sure the Italians could afford him, but I think at Juventus he could be really special. If they played like a 4-2-3-1 with him behind Vlahovic and Chiesa on one of the wings, that could be special. If they went like a 3-4-3, him and Chiesa behind Vlahovic could be absolutely outrageous. In England, he'd fit with Chelsea in the two behind one front three. He doesn't fit United. Arsenal doesn't work either. He's not really a fit for Liverpool. He's not a fit for City in terms of how they set up. They went to a front two. If if City went 4-4-2, he could be ridiculous next to Haaland. Him and Haaland up front, De Bruyne from the right, Foden from the left, Rodri and either Bernardo or Gundogan in the middle, that would be ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. Uh, likewise with Juve, if he was him and Vlahovic up front. For Liverpool, you see, if they play a 4-4-2, which they've obviously done quite a bit, I'd want Salah through the middle. So Zhao would have to play wide, and that's not going to get the best out of him. I would say City in a 4-4-2 or Juve. Don't really like the fit with Laturo at Inter. As a 10 for Milan, if you played the Ketelier as the false, as a false nine, him as a 10, Leao off the left, and say Brahim Diaz or somebody off the right, although I'd rather have a bit more work there. Anti Rebic, maybe. Get Anti Rebic on the right. That could be really special. But I think I'd go Juve as a natural fit, Juve. City would have to shift things ever so slightly. But that would be that would be terrifying. The link play between him and Foden. Him playing off of Haaland, that would be ridiculous. Um listen to AI Scouted this week, and all three of you picked England to win group B with the USA finishing bottom. What would you say the possibility is that Iran and Wales finish in the top two spots and thus obviously send US and England home early in the off chance that does happen. Would you say what would you say are the, is the probability Southgate gets a contract extension? Um, well, Southgate is contracted till after the next Euros, and from what he said, he intends to see that contract out. So that's going to be interesting if that if that is what happens. If they fail, will they keep him? Because I don't know that they pay him off. They're very very cheap. Can you see a scenario in which England don't make it out of the group? No, I, I genuinely can't. I have tried. Believe me, I have tried. But I just don't see it. I think the US, they're too poor at the back. And even though I think they can hurt England going forward, I just don't think they're going to be able to do enough. Iran can hurt England by having, you know, two lumps up front and playing a direct style. 
But again, I just don't think they'll be good enough defensively. Like England have Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling. Like they're very, very good players. I suppose if teams just start to really frustrate England, if they just pack their defence and try and catch England on the counter-attack, then maybe, but I just know, I just don't think so. I, I think it's going to be England. And to be fair, any of the other three could go through. Like, the US men's national team have the most talent of the others by a considerable margin. But they also have the worst, well, maybe not the worst, yeah, probably the worst manager. Robert Page would be a better manager than Burrholder. Um, Kiro Stephanie is, he's not great, but he's definitely better than Burrholder. Um, they just don't have the, the, the right level of talent, the right tactical input from their coaches. I know England don't have a great manager, but they do have the right level of talent. The US men's national team could finish second, but I just, I can't back anything that Burrholder is involved in. Wales, Wales rely heavily on one player, and if Gareth Bale doesn't isn't absolutely majestic, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Um. So yeah, basically no, I I don't see a scenario where England don't get out of the group. Um. Right, Alex asks, who are some of the players from two thousand eighteen that had a big World Cup and have fallen off a cliff since? Who are some players that you think are in danger of doing the same after this tournament? That's an interesting one. So he gives Harry Maguire as an example. I think that's a very a very fair example. Um, Maguire did have a big tournament and has not been anywhere close to that kind of level since. Uh, if we look at the the All Star team, uh, Thibaut Courtois was picked. There's an All Star team and a, and a dream team. So Courtois was the goalkeeper for both. Uh, he's still great. Um, Andreas Grankfist, he's retired now. Thiago Silva, he's just aged. Varane has fallen off considerably since 2018. It was almost like he kind of completed football. He'd won his fourth European Cup, third in a row, and the World Cup, and it was almost like he just put it on easy mode after that. Um, Yerry Mina has just never stayed fit. Obviously, moving to Everton, he, he's just been frequently injured since coming over. Um, of the dream team, Marcelo, he's he just aged. So Godin is the other one. It's Marcelo, Silva, Varane, and Godin. Uh, again, it's just age. I don't think any of them fell off a cliff. Um, the all-star team midfielders, and here's where we get interesting. So Modric is still great, but he has aged. The other two, Philippe Coutinho, he has fallen off an enormous cliff. He was tremendous in that World Cup and hasn't been since. Hasn't been anything like it since. Uh, Denis Sheryshev, I think, has also come off the cliff and tumbled down. Now, he wasn't helped by the fact that he went to Valencia and they're a train wreck, but he has not been good. Um, Eden Hazard, now not directly afterwards, but certainly he's had the fall off. Antoine Griezmann, the same. Harry Kane is the only one of the forward players who's maintained the level from the All-Star team, from their fan dream team. Uh, Mbappe is, is has gotten better, 
Cristiano has aged, but he has he has gotten considerably worse. Um, Coutinho, Griezmann, Hazard, Varane to a lesser extent because he hasn't fallen off a cliff. He's still good, but he's not close to. He was he looked like he was going to be the best defender in the world around that time. It was like him and Van Dijk levels above everybody else. Really, Marquinhos kind of struggling to keep up with them, and now Varane. Is he a top 10 centre-back in the game? And it's not like he's old. Rafa Varane's only 29. He was 25 when he won that World Cup. And he has declined significantly since then. Um, In terms of this World Cup, it's hard to predict who's going to have big tournaments, to be honest. Like, I could see Frankie de Jong having a big tournament and then continuing to decline at club level as he has at Barcelona because it just doesn't work for him. Frankie, I don't know who I saw make this point recently, but I really agreed. I can't think who said it. Someone said this on Twitter the other day. Frankie de Jong and Memphis Depay ideally need to be the biggest fish in a medium-sized pond rather than a big fish in a big pond or a normal-sized fish in a big pond. They need to be at sort of second tier teams and have the team built around them like Memphis did at Lyon, like Frankie did at Ajax. So still big clubs, but just not the elite of the elite. I could see Frankie having a really, really good World Cup. Maybe even getting a move, but to another top club and just kind of going off the cliff. Leon Goretzka is one I've got my eye on. I don't know if he's going to play every game, but I've been really disappointed with him for Bayern for the last two years. And I can kind of see the start of a real physical decline for him. So it's possible for him. Uh, In the England squad itself, Kane would seem like the obvious one just given his age, but that would be more age-related than anything else. John Stones has been declining at Premier League level for 18 months. Um, Since the 2021 season where there was no fans and he and Luke Shaw had the seasons of their lives, both of them have been largely poor. It wouldn't surprise me if they had big World Cups and people got all excited about them and then they just fell off a cliff. Um, Maguire is another candidate to do this again, to have a great World Cup. Because the slower nature of World Cup football and the back three and England's defensive style, it suits him. It does suit him. Um, And Raheem Sterling, because he just doesn't look right this season. But he always turns up for England. So it wouldn't surprise me if Raheem had a really good World Cup and then a pretty disastrous time at Chelsea afterwards. I really hope he doesn't because I've always liked Raheem. But yeah, I think I think he's a candidate for that. Um... Also wondering if you could talk about New York City FC stadium situation. Do you know what? I haven't actually looked at this yet. Give me, I'll do that tomorrow. I will have a look at that tomorrow. And you asked another question about um, a kind of a, a Liverpool. Where are they now? But some young players. I will do that tomorrow as tomorrow's Daily Red. So give that a listen. Uh, that will be Friday's Daily Red. I will do that. And on tomorrow's two-footed, I will talk about New York City Stadium's situation. I've, I've 
seen bits and pieces. I want to really dig into it though. So give me till tomorrow on that. Uh, we'll just wrap up with the gossip and be done for the day. Contract negotiations between Mason Mount and Chelsea owners are ongoing and a breakthrough has been made in the past few weeks. I have seen reports from well-connected people saying that is not true. There hasn't been a breakthrough. They're still hoping for one, but there hasn't been one. Many Manchester United players do not think Cristiano will play for the club again. He shouldn't ever play for the club again. Sporting Lisbon chief Frederico Verandes has denied reports linking the Portuguese club with a move for Cristiano, saying a bid was never discussed. If even they don't want him, he's screwed. Because they bring him back for nostalgia purposes. If they don't want him, he's got nowhere to go. Maybe, maybe Chelsea, because Bowley's an idiot. A mural of Cristiano has been removed from the side of Old Trafford just hours after his interview. Oh, hours before his interview was aired on Wednesday, so after the clips came out. France midfielder Adrian Rabio says he feels lucky not to have completed the transfer from Juventus to Manchester United in the summer. Uh, Angolo Kante's contract with Chelsea runs out in the summer and both Juventus and Inter Milan are interested in signing him. Serie A might suit him a bit more. Slower pace, as his legs go, he, he'll be able to, to carry on. Joan Laporte says the club were interested in signing Colombian Ford Luis Diaz before he joined Liverpool. Chelsea, sorry, Arsenal midfielder Charlie Patino, whose contract runs out next summer and is currently on loan at Blackburn, is being tracked by Barcelona. Let me just pull him up for one sec. So, Charlie Patino. Is his contract to, is this contract with Arsenal 2023? It must be. If Arsenal lose him, that will be a devastating blow. Because of all the talented players that have come through the Hale End, he might be the very best of them. Charlie Bettino. Arsenal contracts. Yeah, he is. He's in the last year of his contract. Which means that on January 1st... Oh, Arsenal... Oh, sorry, hang on. Arsenal have... Well, now... This is the Express, so potentially utter garbage... Arsenal have a deadline to activate the two-year option they have to extend Charlie Patino's contract, according to reports. When it, I haven't seen those reports. Oh, the Athletic are reporting, so fair enough. Fair enough. They can extend his contract until 2025, but there is apparently a deadline by which they can do that. They have to do it. They have to do it. Even if it makes someone happy, you have to do it. You can work them back around and you've got two years. He is he is outrageously talented. Um, Shakhtar Donetsk want 100 million euro from Mikhailo Mudrik. That is ridiculous. Mudrik says he is shocked by the price tag and does not believe a top European club will pay that amount of money from the Ukrainian league. If they say 100 million, they probably want 50 to 60 because the price been touted was was 30, and they're trying to get that probably doubled. But I think they'd probably take 50. AC Milan are interested in a Hossim Hour. Fair enough. 
Um, former Argentina coach Martin Di Michaelis, who spent three years at Manchester City, has left a coaching role at Bayern Munich to become the new head coach at River Plate. Marcelo Gallardo has resigned. He is hoping to take a job in Europe, potentially during this World Cup break. And, um, you know, if I was West Ham, I might be kicking the tyres on that. Uh, Yeah, that is it. That's all I've got for today, folks. Thanks as always. I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.